Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 90 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 11th of November 2012, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, part 22. And the Bible reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 6 to 26. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. John chapter 4, we'll begin our reading in verse verse 6 and read down through verse 26. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink? Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Father, we thank you again this morning for this time that we have together. And Lord, particularly now, we thank you for your word that we have before us, Lord, that you have preserved for us. We thank you for your presence here with us today. We thank you for the presence of your spirit within us. And Father, we thank you that now we have this opportunity to look into your word and that by the power of your spirit, may you speak to our hearts. Lord, you know every individual here. Lord, we know that it would be so easy for this time to be wasted, but Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to what you have for us at this time. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would be a changed people, that every one of us, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, oh, that this might be the day that they would come to know him personally. And Father, for every child of yours here, Lord, that you would work in us so that in some way we would leave here encouraged stronger, Lord, that we would leave here challenged to do that which you send us forth to do, Father, that we would leave here more like our Savior than when we came. We give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We continue 
in our series, number 90 in our Contending for the Faith series. And the 22nd, as we've been looking into the Word of God concerning the glorious church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we began, this is our third now, as we look at that church of the operation of that church, then we pray that as we look here today, that again, that church could be better understood, that it could mean more to us, that it could have a more special place in our lives and our hearts. And so today, as we begin to look, we are going to look at some of the functions of the church. What are the functions of a New Testament church? We say this in our own statement of faith as a church that these local churches consist of regenerated believers who have been scripturally baptized, buried with him in baptism, and are banded together, and then we give the reason for worship, work, and spiritual fellowship spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth according to the specific teachings of the New Testament. In other words, we say that that is the purposes that we have laid out uh, for our church, why we are here. And as we summarize those things, we see that it is to worship. I guess that's one of the first one that comes to mind, the times that we gather together on the Lord's day to work the work of the Lord, not our own work, but the work that he has given us to do, the fellowship, that fellowship one with another, and we'll be looking at, at those things. And of course, evangelism, that's one of our primary purposes in being here is to win the lost to Christ. And then finally, teaching, doing all of these things that we're here for according to the specific teachings of the New Testament. Now, I believe that we can look into Scripture, which is what we will attempt to do these next couple of Sundays, and see that we have a, a biblical mandate for all of these functions. You see, it is very easy for a church just to become, on the one hand, another social thing in people's lives something that they do just like when they go to the club or they go to this association or that association. You know, Sunday morning is a time that they get together with those other Christians, and that's about the depth of the meaning that it has to them. It's very easy for it to become something that's mechanical because for a lot of people it needs to be more mechanical as well uh, because it doesn't happen too automatic. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the truth is, is that as we look around Christendom, I think that I would be very honest in being able to say this, that to most people, uh, the purpose of the church in our lives uh, is missing a lot of the spark, a lot of the vitality that it ought to have there. Uh, it's just another part of a whole bunch of other things in our lives, and it's lost its specialness. We've said as we began the study on the church that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The church is his instrument here upon this earth that is made up of these united believers that have banded together as one body to be able to accomplish the work of Jesus Christ. And yet, somehow it's can become so much a part of our lives that it just becomes something else there that, like so many of the things in our lives, that doesn't have any special meaning. You know, sometimes you can easily begin to take the things for granted that mean the most to you, husbands and wives, many of the things in our lives that are just always there that we've been blessed with, and we just begin to take them for granted. We can begin to take the church for granted if we're not careful. I want us to see as we look here, we're going to focus upon one thing this morning, one of those functions, and that's the ministry of worship. You see, we've seen as we've looked at this church that the very nature of the church is to assemble. They are the Lord's called out 
assembly. And as part of a church, if we're all just going our individual ways and doing our own thing at the sacrifice of what we do together as a body, then we will suffer for that. God's people, as we look through the Scriptures, they have always met together. They did right through the Old Testament, and the church of the New Testament adopted that practice Though they started doing it on a different day rather than meeting on Saturdays, the Old Testament saints had done, they began meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, in honor of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was on the first day of the week that they went and they found that empty tomb. That's not the only time that churches assemble themselves But of all the different times that they come together, it is that one time that is accepted almost universally by all of the churches, with very few exceptions, that they come together on Sundays. This time of assembling together on the Lord's Day very often is referred to as a a time of worship or as a worship service. It's not the only services, but because that is one of the primary things that we come together for. It's not the only function, but it's certainly one of the big reasons that we meet together and that we encourage you to meet together and that God's advice, recommendation, wisdom to you is that he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together As the matter of some is, there were some that were forsaking that time of coming together and assembling together. But he says, no, he says, but exhorting one another, building each other up. And then he goes on to say, and all the more, as you see that day approaching, as we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't need to be taking our pride in how strong that I am as a Christian We need to be exhorting one another and recognizing that, folks, we need each other. There's a real battle. This whole series is about contending for the faith, of fighting for the faith, of standing up for the faith that we hold so precious and so dear because we do live in a day when it's being eroded away and it's being taken away. And many even genuine born-again believers are not taking a stand upon the things that are biblical So what do we mean? If this time of coming together, of assembling ourselves, and one of the purposes of that coming together is for worship, I wonder if I ask you this morning, define worship for me. You know, the simple truth is, is that people have a lot of different ideas about worship. Do you know the first time that worship is mentioned in the Bible? It's found in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. And you know, I guess this was something that even just this week, I think it was uh, Garcia that asked the question as I walked through her Sunday school class, the kids this morning, something about, you know, pastor's been saved a long time. I think she was saying he's old and gray and, and, you know, but he still learns things from the Bible. And I said, yes. And I mean, you know, I guess, you know, that I've done a lot of studying on worship before, But I saw something new this week that I thought was exciting to me. The very first time that worship is mentioned in your Bible is in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. And it says this, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, do you know the context of when he was talking to those young men and he was talking about he and the lad, which happened to be Isaac, of going yonder to worship and coming back again? That was when Abraham was about to take his son Isaac and lay him up on the altar. (laughs) And, of course, we know as we look into Scripture, the symbolism is of there of the God giving his son for us as that sacrificial lamb. The word that was used there, the word uh, shalkal, is, is the one that is most commonly translated in the Old Testament for this word worship. 
What does it mean? Abraham says, my lad and I, we're going there on the mountain, and we're going to worship. And after we finish our worship, we're going to come again to you. The word literally carries the idea of being prostrate, of paying homage to royalty, to God, to bow oneself down, to, to literally fall down flat before someone because you hold them in such awesome reverence before you. It's to humble yourself, to do obeisance, to do reverence, to worship. Now, I find it interesting, the word worship in our Bibles, if you go back and you find that that word actually changed uh, way back when. <laughs> I forget the century that it, that, it, that it came to change. But before we started spelling it worship and saying worship, it was worth-ship. <laughs> worth-ship. It was that honoring of, of, of someone that was worthy to be honored. We find that... In the New Testament, the first time that the word worship is used in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, says in verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. We've come to worship him. In the Old Testament, the very first time that that word is ever used is that symbolic moment when Abraham is about to lay his son upon the altar as the sacrificial lamb. And we know the faith that Abraham had. We know that he believed that God would supply that sacrifice, that he was there. The very first time that we find the word in the New Testament is when that one that was being symbolized there on that altar, when he entered this world, when he came to this world in human flesh, they came to worship him, to worship him. The word used here has almost exactly the same meaning, even though that it's a Greek word instead of a Hebrew word. Proskenia. It does carry a little, it, it, again, it has this idea of, of prostrating oneself in homage, doing reverence to adore, to hold someone in awesome reverence. But you know what I find interesting is how that word was often used? It was often used of that homage that literally an animal, a dog, would pay to its master when it would come up with just such great joy and just licking the back of the hand and licking that hand and licking that hand because we're so glad to see them. That's the word that would be used in describing that action. So we find that as we look at these two words, and as we see what they mean, we look, the Bible is full of God's people worshiping Him, of God's people worshiping Him, putting Him in such a high place, humbling themselves as humble as they can, putting themselves in the lowest state they can because of the awesome reverence that they hold for him, lifting him in such high esteem. Worship has everything to do with we as his people, humbling ourselves before him, a holy God, paying homage to our king, showing him the, the reverence and the, and the adoration that he, that he so deserves, praising him, glorifying him. Those words carry almost the same meanings from our very innermost being. Of course, one of the great writers of bygone years, A.W. Tozer, he asked this question, what is worship? He said, worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring all and 
astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father, which art in heaven. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, true biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. William Temple made this clear in his definition of worship. He says, for worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and source of all actual sin. Too often today, may I say to you, too often, it has everything to do with the flesh, with our feelings, with our emotions, with what it does for me or doesn't do for me. The focus so many times when we come together in assemblies is too often on working something up in the flesh, getting myself to feel a certain way. And often we turn to all kinds of things. Many churches today, they've turned to much of the CCM Christian music that's really nothing more than pop and rock that has been set up in order to, to play with their emotions and to work with their emotions. Why? It appeals to the flesh. You're not very human if you don't recognize that music has an effect on us, a very real effect. And of course, we could make out a whole list of things that are done in the name of worship. People get excited, but they're getting excited about the wrong things. They're getting excited because the music that they're singing makes them feel good. But are they excited about who they're singing it for? An emphasis is often put on just letting yourself loose and letting yourself flow for the moment. And, of course, very often, as those things do and people do, then we find that they do lose themselves. And the order of the day becomes disorder and confusion. So many times, the awe, the splendor that God is supposed to be being, being held in is, is completely lost in all of it. Of course, on the other hand, there's a problem also with some people that just feel absolutely nothing. You know why? Because there's nothing coming from their heart. They're more worried about what somebody else is doing or whether somebody else has done this right. They're so worried about all of these things that has nothing to do. There is no way that you can sit in the presence of something that is that awesome to you and be thinking about what so-and-so's doing or what so-and-so's saying or what this person's not doing or what that person is doing. And yet so many times, that's what's filled the minds of the congregations across the world. You see, we used to have a saying, they're as cold as an iceberg or as dead as last year's bird nest. You go into these places that are supposed to be holding this one in absolute awesome awe, and yet they feel absolutely nothing. It's deadness. It's all mechanical. I, I, I simply ask you folks, you know, how can you possibly 
love and praise and glorify from the very depths of your heart and not feel anything. The order of the day for many is their plan, mechanical liturgy, and they wouldn't know the Holy Spirit if he sat down beside them, let alone made himself known within them. Preacher, that's harsh. No, I'm just saying these are the extremes out there, folks. And most Christians are somewhere, if they're not on those extremes, they're somewhere in between where part of those things are a problem in their life and very little true worship takes place. We're going through the motions and our minds are on everything else except what we ought to be here for. That's not what the Bible describes as worship. I used to do something that a lot of people thought was kind of silly, but it was a little thing that helped me. I guess as a young person, I'm not talking about you guys sitting on the back row, but I used to always come in and sit down on the back row just like a lot of you do. You know, I noticed something as I got more and more interested in what was taking place. The problem with sitting on the back row was that everybody else was between me and what was going on at the front, and all these distractions would come along. You know where I found my place then? On the first or second row. I didn't want any, anything between me that was going to take away from what I was there for. Now, I don't think everybody's going to sit on the front row next week, but I'm just saying if you know that there's something that's hindering you, why don't you do something about it? If there are distractions, if there's anything that is hindering you from truly focusing upon why you should be here, why don't you do something about it? Move to the front. If other people are bothering you, put them behind you. They won't bother you anymore. We find that people have got a lot of ideas about what's proper and acceptable worship and how we should go about it in church. And you'll find everything from these extremes that we talk about from from just a formal written liturgy that there's nothing wrong with what's written in some of those things, but it just becomes mechanics that they go through. It's a wild, ecstatic chaos that, man, you just, you, you can't move your head and keep your eyes fast enough to figure out what in the world is going on in this place and everything in between. And you know what? No matter what I say on this subject from this pulpit, simple truth is, is that uh, some people aren't going to agree with me. A lot of people out there aren't going to agree with me, and probably some people within aren't going to agree with me. I have to accept that. Regardless of how we conduct our own times of worship, there are going to be a lot of people that aren't going to like the way that we do it. There are going to be a lot of people that would like to give us guidance on how we should be doing it. Worship styles change, even in the same churches, oftentimes with just a simple change of a pastor, somebody different at the front that's leading. You can go out and you can find just about anything that you want to call worship. You can find it out there somewhere. And you know, the sad thing is that most all of them are absolutely convinced that the way they are doing it is the best way to do it. So how do we figure out what's right and what's wrong? How do we know what is acceptable and not acceptable? Well, my only answer is that we certainly can't look to others. And you can find a book that will give you some real good reasons on why you should do it this way and that. That's not the place we need to look. Matter of fact, it doesn't even come down to trying to figure out, well, I like this and I don't like that. I, I feel good about this and I don't feel good about that. I, well, I think what we ought to be asking ourselves is, what does God like? What does God like? If it's him that we're wanting to put in this awesome place before us, what does he have to say? about worship and what it should be and what's acceptable to him. Well, one of the best-known passages concerning worship is this passage that we read this morning here 
in the Gospel of John chapter 14, Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman. I mean, she can't even figure out why in the world is he talking to me and asking me to get water. He's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Hey, Jews don't have anything to do with the Samaritans. Why is he doing that? And of course, Jesus offering her not the physical water there from Jacob's well, but that water that will give her eternal life, that living water that he calls it. And he goes through this, and this is, you know, amazingly, this, this, this dissertation is upon salvation, is upon Jesus offering this woman salvation, be saved from her sins. And I mean, you know, she's not exactly one of those that would be listed as the top in society's eyes. She's already been married five times, and she's shacked up with somebody now that's not her husband. And yet Jesus is offering her eternal life. He's offering her forgiveness. He's offering her a new life. She's obviously made a mess of that one down here. And he's trying to show her something beyond that. And it's in the midst of that conversation. Let's go back and read those verses again, just picking up in verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in the mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, you know, my ancestors, they had a certain place there on the mountain that they worshipped, but yet you Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Jesus said, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But then notice what he says in verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, if there's true worshipers, that means there's false worshipers. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit, if some are doing it in spirit, that must mean some are doing it in the flesh. And in truth, some are doing it in truth. Some must be doing it outside of truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's one of those passages as you begin to read it, one of the questions that often comes up is, okay, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. What is he talking about there, worshiping in spirit? Well, you know that it's one of those places in Scripture where even the theologians, they get in these long dissertations on why this spirit here, the spirit and truth, why it's the Holy Spirit or why it's man's spirit. Well, the problem is for many of them that this word pneuma that's used there can be designated for both. Most places it's very easy to tell whether he's speaking of the spirit of man or the spirit of God. The word literally means a, a current of air, like breath that blows out or like a, a breeze that blows through. It's used in speaking of the inner soul. It's used as speaking of a mental disposition. You know, they've got a good spirit, a bad spirit, a spirit of this, a spirit of that, a spirit of love, a spirit of hatred, of a disposition that comes from within, in other words. The thing is, it's used of these things in man. But it's used of these things also of God. It speaks of Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's also used when speaking of the, the spirits of angels and of demons. So how in the world do we know what's being said here? What's being meant by this? I want you to notice how emphatic that it is. True worshipers... What's the next word in your Bible? Every word is important. Shall, not should, not maybe. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
And then what's the next verse? They that worship him, what's the next word in your Bible? Must worship him in spirit and in truth. These are two emphatics. You know, this is, this is something that is very important. It's not something that we should do. If we're going to truly worship, if we are true worships, worshipers that are going to worship the Father, then the only way that that can take place is in spirit and truth. True worshipers. Now he just got through telling this lady just, just before this, she don't know what in the world she's worshiping. She's a false worshiper. She's been worshiping the false gods. Now, the fact is, is that everyone's worship isn't true worship. People can be sincere. This Samaritan lady, her people, the Samaritans, had been very sincere in their worship on the mountain. But that didn't make it true worship. True worshipers, not the false ones like you have been, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In the past, the location had always been important. That was one of the ways of defining true worshipers and false worshipers. God had specific designated places where that worship had to take place. The tabernacle, the temple, the ones that truly worship God would be at this point in Jerusalem in the temple not on some mountain out in Samaria. The true worshipers are those that had taken of the living water that he was trying to offer her. And those that had taken of that living water, that was the first step in becoming a true worshiper. The distinction now is not in the place, but in the person. The distinction isn't whether you're worshiping in this place or that place, that the only way you're going to worship the Father is through the Son. Wherever you are, Jesus is the only accent. He's the only way to the Father. So without Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what kind of religious ceremonies you go through, and it doesn't matter how much of a great, exciting hoopla of a time that you have. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you cannot truly be a true worshiper. You can't truly worship God. You come to him through Jesus Christ. We find that you may be here today. You may have, be a very religious person. You may have a genuine love in your heart for doing what's right and for pleasing God. But I'm saying to you, doesn't matter where you've been, what rituals you've been through, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what churches you've been a part of, doesn't matter what religious organizations that you've had dealings with, you can't be a true worshiper without the living water. You can't be a true worshiper. You can't even get into God's presence without Jesus Christ. It's impossible we find that true worshipers shall and must. There's no question. If you're going to worship, first of all, you've got to be a true worshiper. You've got to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And even in those that truly know him, the only way that you can worship through Jesus Christ is in spirit and in truth. So we find that outside of this spirit and truth, there is no true worship. That's, again, not just something that is desirable for worship. It is essential to worship. It's pretty important that we know exactly what he's talking about here. Verse 24, the next verse says, God is a spirit. In other words, 
God isn't some material substance. Not like man or like any of those idols or any even of those physical places where that people may go to worship. He, God, is a spirit. You can't see him with your physical eyes unless he himself chooses to manifest himself to you as he was here in Jesus. And of course, he is there in the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell within each and every believer. God is a spirit. He took on flesh so that he might come for the very purpose to die in that flesh for mine and your sins. But God is spirit. So therefore, they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Preacher, I'm asking you again, does that mean that we have to worship him, as some would say, in the Holy Spirit, or that we have to worship him in our spirit? Let me give you a couple of facts. You see, it really doesn't do a whole lot of good. If I sit here and say, that's what it means, what does God say? What conclusion can we come to that you can know in your heart is what God means by it? Fact. Worship is emphatically not possible in the natural man. It can't take place in the flesh. It is not something that is external. God is a spirit, and so therefore, if we're going to worship him, we can't do it in the flesh. It's got to be a spiritual thing. Fact. The spirit is within us, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, whether it's my spirit or the Holy Spirit, it's got to be coming from within. Agreed? If it's got to be done in the spirit, it can't be done in the flesh. My spirit is the innermost me, and the Holy Spirit of God lives and dwells in me. So may we absolutely deduce from that that worship cannot possibly originate in the flesh. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from within. It's got to be in the spirit. This is a fact also. Those that have taken of the water of life, those that have received Jesus Christ, they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're instructed to be filled with the Spirit of God. That should be a, a daily process as we yield ourselves and give Him control, we should be being controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be filled with His Spirit. You see, the Bible teaches that you, as a true believer, become one with Christ. May I say to you, He also makes it clear <laughs> that He's one with the Father and one with the Spirit. So if you're a true believer today, you are one with Christ, and you are therefore one in the Spirit. Those things are absolute facts. Those things we know are true. It's only a true believer that can be a true worshiper. And a true believer has the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit present within him. And if he's walking with God, that Spirit needs to be yielded he needs to be yielding himself totally, completely to the control of that spirit so that when he's worshiping, that worship is coming from within. And you see, I, I, I say it because I'm, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm a simple guy. <laughs> for the Chris, bottom line is it don't make a bit of difference because for a child of God to worship in the spirit 
It is the Holy Spirit that is living within him, that is controlling him. And I believe that what Jesus is trying to say to us clearly here is there's only one way to worship God, and that's to worship through Jesus Christ. And when you take of that living water, and when Jesus Christ is present within you, the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit should have control of your life. So you're true whether you say that if you're going to worship him, You've got to worship from within, from your spirit and not the flesh. And you've got to worship in the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's got to have control because he's the only one that will give you power over your flesh. You won't have it any other way. You've got to have control over your own flesh. True worship is spirit-empowered, not man-powered. Too much worship today is man-powered and man-designed. It's got to be spirit-empowered. They that worship him, you're not going to do it by all your mechanics and getting all your little I's dotted and all your T's crossed. Nobody loves the doctrines of God more than I do. I got news for you. Never in the human race Never in the history of mankind has anybody, no matter how many times they've assembled together, no matter how many times they've been in the midst of whatever style of worship service that it might be, nobody has ever sat there with a critical spirit and worshiped God. Can't be. It can't happen. It won't happen. If you're going to truly worship him, true worshipers will do it in spirit and truth. If you're really, really genuinely going to worship him, it'll be in spirit and what's the next thing? In truth. What is truth? Well, I'm just going to give you a few verses. Boy, we could stack up verses on top of verses on top of verses on top of verses here. Let me give you just a few to make the point. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, Let God be true, but every man a liar. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Okay? God is truth. There's no man that fits in there. If we're going to worship him, we can't worship in man in the flesh. God is truth. Bible also said, Jesus said in John 14, 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Many times we use that verse in trying to make it explicit for salvation, which is very true. The only way you can get to God for salvation is through Jesus Christ. But guess what? As a Christian, as a Christian, you still your access is still only through Jesus. That's something that remains forever. That's a permanent, absolute fact. The only way to Jim, God is true and every man a liar. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. It's interesting because we find then just two chapters later in John chapter 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, Jesus said. For he shall receive a mind and shall show it unto you. God's truth, Jesus' truth, the Holy Spirit is truth. John 17, 17, in the very next chapter, Jesus is praying, his intercessory prayer, praying for you. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If I'm not mistaken, folks, it was actually the Word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So we find that 
What does it mean to worship in truth? Well, first of all, it's got to be genuine, true, heartfelt worship, not something put on, not something that's artificial, something that's false. Our worship has got to be centered upon God in all of his fullness of who he is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then true worship must be consistent with the Word of God, with what he's revealed to us in his Word. Once we start going, you see, there's these ideas today that a lot of that stuff doesn't matter anymore, that it was just for that culture, and it was for that time, and it's too old, and it needs to be updated, and it needs to be changed. If you're going to truly worship God, it's going to be in his truth. In other words, though, a lot of people don't want to hear this. It's got to be doctrinally sound. What's taught in the Word of God in order to glorify him? I know a lot of people don't like emphasis of any kind on teaching and doctrine in our day. But I got news for you. God places a lot of emphasis upon it. And anything else that's not truth cannot ever glorify him, cannot ever truly worship him. I don't care what we call it. I don't care what it does to our feelings. I don't care what it does to our emotions. It can't be worship. Many people today simply don't want to hear the teachings of truth. They don't want to abide by those things. And you know, so many times when, when they start letting themselves go and, and losing control, many of those other things begin to creep in that are contradictory to God's Word. They don't matter anymore. I'm saying that true worship it's got to be biblically grounded. It's got to be in the truth, folks. That's our guide, not what man says about it. Let God be true. But man, what? A liar. God's the only one we can count on, that we can know with absolute certainty. For too many people, it's just a lot of feel-good stuff going on. It's not really to please him. It's to make me feel good. It's not to honor and glorify him. It's because it's a nice time for us. True worship begins in the heart. And once it begins there, just like your salvation and anything else that's done for God, once it begins in the heart, it'll make its way to the outside. And if it's coming from the heart, I believe it's going to show in some way. You're not going to sit there like some kind of a miserable, dried-up prune. There's going to be some joy that comes from within. It's going to affect you, but you can't work that up on the outside first. For it to be true worship, it's got to come from within. There ought to be joy in our worship. There ought to be joy as we reverence him, as we bring glory to him, as we, as we hold him in awe like nothing else in all of the world got to come from the heart, not man-made. It's got to be true to the Scriptures. True worship comes from the heart, and it stands to reason that huh, you can make sure your heart's right. First of all, that you say, but you know, as a Christian, our hearts have to be right if we're going to glorify God from our hearts. Remember, that's where we looked last as the focus of these operations, everything has got to be for his glory, not for ours. If we're truly looking upon anyone, in this case particularly God, in true reverential awe, it also stands to reason that our mind is going to be upon him. There's no way that you're sitting there worshiping him right here this morning and your mind being on all those other things that are going on in your life. Can't be. He doesn't have the right place. He's going to have your attention. 
if he's the most awesome thing that you've ever laid eyes on. If you truly love him more than anything in all the world, see, it's a challenge because many times when people are gathered together for the purpose of worship, man, their minds are wandering all over the place, looking at this person, at that person, thinking about this and thinking about that. I give you a final illustration in closing. It says, deeply immersed in meditation during a church service, Italian poet Dante Alighieri failed to knee at the appropriate or to kneel at the appropriate moment. Boy, his enemies jumped on that and they began to, to talk to the bishop and to tell the bishop, and they demanded that, that Dante be punished for this sacrilege of not kneeling when he was supposed to. I may not have agreed with the way Dante was worshiping, but I like his defense. He said this. He said, if those who accuse me had had their eyes and minds on God as I had, they too would have failed to notice events around them and they most certainly would not have noticed what I was doing. <laughs> Great defense. <laughs> he forgot to do what he was supposed to because he just got so engrossed in God that the mechanical thing didn't get done. But everybody else that was getting all the mechanics right on the outside, if they'd been as engrossed in God as he was, they wouldn't have noticed what was going on with him. Folks, worship ought to be a very special time for us. And everybody's not going to agree on everything. And we're going to be looking at all the different things that make up worship over at least the next one or two weeks what are the different parts of a worship service and what should be happening during that time with us? But before we look at any of those things, this morning I just want to share my heart. Worship itself has got to be biblical worship. It should be special, but it's not going to be special because we do something in the flesh physically to make it that way. It's going to be special from our hearts when God has the right place in our heart. Yes, music, prayer, preaching and teaching. We listed those things earlier. They're all a part of it, and we'll talk about those, but it's not right in the heart. None of those things are going to matter. It's not going to matter what we sing or what we preach or what we teach or what we pray if the heart's not right. This is Jesus Christ that said, if you're going to truly worship, you're going to worship in spirit and in truth, not in the flesh, not in anything that is artificial, in spirit and in truth. And if we do that, our time of worship will be very special. You know, it's amazing. I've been in lots of different styles of worship in my life, from some of the most quiet to some pretty loud ones. I don't want anything that's out of order, but I'm saying, you know, that I can promise you this, style didn't have nearly as much to do with it as what was taking place in my heart. That doesn't mean that everything's right and everything's okay, as we've already talked about, but it's got to begin here. Let worship be special to you. Let worship be special to us. That's part of what we as a body come together for, is to worship Him. Let's not let it be stolen from us. And if you're here today, oh, listen. You want to have that very special time in the presence, genuinely in the presence of God? Do you know no church, no religion, no anything can give that to you if you don't have Jesus Christ today? If you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you make this today? Would you recognize that? Would you understand that? There is no other way to get access with God. You must humble yourself, admit your sinfulness, Ask forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Repent, turn away from that old life, and follow Jesus Christ. He'll save you today if you're not saved and if you'll come to him. And Christians, and let's try to get all the junk out of our minds and our hearts. If we truly want to worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. Father, thank you today for the time that we have had together for your word. I pray that you'll take these simple thoughts, Lord, today and that, Lord, that you would use them, that you would help us, Lord, because you deserve our worship. But just because we call it worship 
And just because we call it a worship service, and just because we all get together to do it, it doesn't mean it's what's acceptable to you. It doesn't mean it's what's pleasing to you. It doesn't mean that's what's glorifying you. So help us, Lord. May it be a special time. You deserve the time that we come together to worship. Your people have always, always had those times. But, Father, I pray that you would help us this day, that it would be a special time for each of us, that we wouldn't want to miss, and that when we're here, we won't let anything else interfere with it. We give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.